This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 51, which can be found on page 7 of your bulletin. Please join me first in a prayer for illumination. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 51. To the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. When I was in college, I worked every summer in construction trades, and after I graduated, uh, I worked full-time for a year as a framing and, and finish carpenter. I had the opportunity to build uh, several houses, and, and I learned a lot. Uh, but after a year, in just one mild North Carolina winter, I was ready to go back to school, and I pursued uh, my plans to go to seminary. Well, there at the seminary, I had a professor uh, who learned that I had some of these skills, and he wanted to build an addition to his house, a, a big addition, two stories with a, a new master bath and a kitchen. And he wanted to do it, do it all himself. 
Uh, the only problem was he had no real home building experience, uh, and so he wanted to hire me to help him to accomplish this, this great project. And so I said to him, okay, I, you know, I can help you with this, but I don't want to be involved in putting in the foundation. You know, you should hire someone to do that, and then I can, I can help you put up the walls and, and the rest. But he really wanted to do everything himself. And so I said, okay, uh, you know, fine, you let me know when the foundation is done, and then I'll come, and, and, and I'll be ready. Well, a few weeks later, he, he uh, called me up, and, and I came over, and, and the foundation was laid, and uh, he had done it himself, and, and we got to work, and we started building the house. And I, I learned two things uh, through this experience. First, this, the, the teacher-student relationship doesn't need this complication. You know, teachers and students out there, I don't recommend you get involved in, in house building together. Second, uh, the foundation of a house is really important. Uh, I had the right instinct about that. I quickly found that the foundation that my professor had poured was not level and square. And when your foundation is not right, it turns out that you have lots of other problems. At every, uh, every other step, from floor to roof, it constantly uh, nags at, at you. I was thinking about this story uh, because this summer we've been uh, learning how the Psalms teach us to pray. And today we're looking at this Psalm uh, 51, one of the great confessions of sin uh, in the Bible. And oftentimes, when we think about things that are wrong in our lives, those things that nag us, uh, we think about it like uh, fixing broken parts of a house. You know, I, I need to pray about that habit or, or attitude or, or failure. It's sort of like finding a, a crack in the wall that needs attention or a leaky faucet. But Psalm 51 teaches us a different way uh, to pray our sin. Uh, this psalm opens up the floorboards and says, let's look at the foundation. What do we find here? That's what these first verses do. They, they pull off the floorboards one by one, digging through various acts of, of wrongdoing, our transgressions, iniquity, sin. And the psalmist prays, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. The psalm digs down until the, the foundation is reached. Uh, he doesn't just confess his sins. He confesses that he is a sinner. Uh, a sinner when my mother conceived me. And this doesn't mean uh, that his conception was, was tainted because sex is dirty or something like that. Unfortunately, Christians have sometimes been confused on this. But, but a better interpretation is he's saying that the problem stretches over the whole of his life. The source of the problem is not just behaviors, individual sins, it's a condition of sin. He's saying we're not sinners because we sin, 
We sin because we are sinners. Our, our foundation is cracked. Not everyone believes this. Earlier this year, I read an essay uh, in the New York Times by a woman named Julia Shears. Uh, she's the author of a memoir, as some of you may have heard of, called Jesus Land, and she was raised in a Christian home. Actually, she was raised in the same denomination that we're a part of here at Geneva, the Christian Reformed Church, though I think that the church that she grew up in was a, a different expression of it than we, than we have here. The, the title of her essay in the Times was Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. She explains how in her upbringing, she was taught to think about sin as such an oppressive and fearful thing that she vowed to raise her children according to her own moral code in a secular environment and never, never talk about sin. She still wants her children to be good and moral individuals. So she writes this, Just as my parents' approach to imparting their values was shaped by an effort to avoid the sins they feared, I am raising my two daughters according to my moral code. To me, the greatest sin of all is failing to be an engaged citizen of the world. So the lessons are about being open to others rather than closed off. We started taking our kids to marches when, when the younger one was an infant perched on our shoulders and the three-year-old danced between the lines of protesters as if they were a, a block party. We've, we've marched for racial justice and for women's rights. Our church is the street, our congregation, our fellow crusaders. We teach our children to respect the earth by reducing, reusing, and recycling. It's sinking in. My daughters make me proud by taking their own actions to confront injustice where they see it, by insisting we keep a box of protein bars in the car to hand out to homeless people at stoplights, by participating in school walkouts against gun violence, by intervening when they see kids bullied on the playground, by always questioning the world around them. And she ends the article by talking about the day that one of her children asked her, well, what, it, what was the meaning of this word sin that she saw on a sign? And Julia Shears says she looked down at them and she realized that my kids already knew what sin was without ever having been exposed uh, to the onerous religious weight of the word. Despite being unchurched, they are empathetic, loving, and kind. I gazed into her face and felt a rush of love and happiness. I had raised her without sin. She did have a moral code, one she followed not from obligation, but from her own desire to make the world a better place. Now, I really appreciate this essay because I, I think she articulates very well the experience of many people. Uh, perhaps some of you, raised in a religious environment where sin is something to be feared and avoided at all costs. And she's teaching her children lots of good morals, right? Uh, so can't we just give up on sin and focus on being a good person? Uh, it's a fair question. Our psalm today, Psalm 51, says the answer is no. Not because we're incapable of great acts of beauty and goodness, but because the reality of human brokenness uh, must also be addressed. Uh, we are beautiful and we are broken. In the words of, of Herman Melville, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. 
uh, for, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Many of the psalms uh, that we have seen this summer are cries for help in difficult circumstances. Uh, they say, uh, please change my situation, O God, uh, so that I may praise you. Psalm 51 says, please change me. Uh, I am the problem. Now, we often don't reach uh, this point in our praying because we, we want to think uh, that we can get better ourselves. As, as the heading of this psalm reminds us, even the great King David, who elsewhere the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, had to pray like this. Uh, no one is immune. And yet we would still like to think that we are. The last several weeks uh, have been full of reminders that 50 years ago we sent a man to the moon. Uh, the, the scientific and, and the technological skill that led to that feat is just astounding. But these great achievements, and many more that we could add to them, have not led to a transformation of human nature. The Catholic writer Walker Percy summed it up 30 years ago in his book, Lost in the Cosmos. How is it possible, Percy writes, for the man who designed Voyager 19, which arrived at Titania, a satellite of Uranus, three seconds off schedule and 100 yards off course after a flight of six years. How is it possible for this man to be one of the most screwed up creatures in California or the cosmos? The Bible answers this question by focusing on the heart, not just on our external actions. As we see in Psalm 51, verse 6, you desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Or verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and a right spirit within me. The, the concern here is not just for outward actions, but our inner attitudes. Jesus illustrated the same concern uh, for the heart in uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in, in Luke 18. Uh, there Luke writes, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee focused on what can be seen, judged and compared, his goodness. The tax collector opens his heart to God in prayer and confesses uh, that he is a sinner. And Jesus says that, that this is what God would rather have, 
uh, the real us, with all our failure in sin, than some fake shining image of who we think he wants us to be. When you confess that you are a sinner, you, you are admitting that you cannot solve the problem on your own. You need help from the outside. You need a savior. Flannery O'Connor's great novel, A Wise Blood, is about a man named Hazel Motes who has rejected Christianity to preach a religion of his own making. Uh, he calls it the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. And at, what, at one point, O'Connor says about him uh, that he knew that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If we can just be good, righteous people on our own, then we don't need a Savior. This is why the invitation to be a sinner is, is so important. When we confess not just that we sin, but that we are sinners, we open ourselves to help from the outside. As Martin Luther once wrote, God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. So be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Our deepest problem is in the basement. We are bent away from God. We don't naturally love him or our neighbor made in his image. If this is what leads to all our other problems and sins, then, then a new dependence on God's grace and mercy, when we make a confession like this, it breaks the power of sin by bringing us back into relationship with God. The, the power, the, the real power of Psalm 51 is rooted in confidence that when we go to God with this kind of confession, that he will pour out his grace upon us. Verse 1 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is not a prayer driven by fear. It's a prayer driven by faith and trust in a God of love and mercy. So Psalm 51 doesn't teach us to beat ourselves up over our sin or to, to wallow in our shame and our guilt. It teaches us to, to recognize our condition for what it is with open eyes. And then it shows us how to deal with it for the sake of a deeper joy. This psalm is full of the joy that comes after repentance. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This is a, a joy that's rooted in a, a renewed relationship with God, but also with each other in community as we put down our masks and, and meet one another in our common humanity and in our common need. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this powerfully in Life Together, where he encourages Christians uh, to obey the command of James, to confess your sins to one another. And he explains why this is so important. This is a long quote, but I, I want you to hear it. it. It's so powerful. He says, Those who remain alone with their evil are left utterly alone. It is possible that Christians may remain lonely 
in spite of daily worship together, prayer together, and all their community through service. That the final breakthrough to community does not occur precisely because they enjoy community with one another as pious believers, but not with one another as those lacking piety, as sinners. For the pious community permits no one to be a sinner. Hence, all have to conceal their sins from themselves and from the community. We're not allowed to be sinners. Many Christians would be unimaginably horrified if a real sinner were suddenly to turn up among the pious. So we remain alone with our sin, trapped in lies and hypocrisy, for we are, in fact, sinners. However, the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to comprehend, confronts us with the truth. It says to us, you are a sinner, a great unholy sinner. Now come, as the sinner that you are, to your God who loves you. For God wants you as you are, not desiring anything from you, a sacrifice, a good deed, but rather desiring you alone. As the psalm says, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. How can you know that God really desires you alone? Look at Jesus. Jesus never needed to pray Psalm 51 as a confession of his own sin because he didn't have any. But he chose to pray it for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was born innocent. We were born guilty. But on the cross, Jesus took all our sin and guilt upon himself and gave us his righteousness. He received judgment. We received mercy. His blood was shed so that we might be washed clean. His bones were crushed so that we might hear joy and gladness. Let me close with uh, an illustration that I love from uh, Dostoevsky's great novel, A Crime and Punishment. It's about a student named Raskolnikov. And Raskolnikov is a nihilist who convinces himself that he is above the rules that apply to normal human beings. And he kills an old woman and her sister to rob them. And the rest of the book is about how this surprising guilt, the, the surprising guilt of this act weighs on him and, and begins to destroy him. He doesn't know what to do until he goes to a prostitute with whom he has fallen in love, who's also a Christian, and he admits to her what he has done. He then asks her what he should do. And she tells him that the only way to life is through a humbling public confession and repentance. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. He says, well, what am I to do now? He asked her, suddenly raising his head and looking at her with a face hideously distorted by despair. What are you to do, she cried, jumping up. And her eyes that had been full of tears suddenly began to shine. Stand up. She seized him by the shoulder. He got up, looking at her almost bewildered. Go at once, this very minute. Stand at the crossroads. Bow down. 
First, kiss the earth which you have defiled, and then bow down to all the world and say to all men aloud, I am a murderer. Then God will send you life again. Will you go? Will you go? She asked him. He does go, and he he does it. And he shows the way forward for all those who are ready to admit their need for grace. In Jesus, God shows that he is always ready to receive us into his embrace. Will you go? Will you go to him with your need, with your doubt, with your sin, with your addiction, with your religious self-righteousness and your pride? Will you go? Because when you do, he always stands ready to forgive. Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you do uh, call us, as we are, as sinners, uh, into your embrace. Uh, That you have not stayed uh, far off. Uh, but that you have moved towards us in the person and work of your son to become like us and to take uh, the punishment for our sin upon yourself. Uh, we pray that you would give us faith today to trust in him. And would you renew us by your spirit that out of gratitude and thanks for the, 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 the greatness of your gift that we would uh, be people who are changed, uh, who love you from the heart and love others uh, as you have loved us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.